Hey everybody, my name is Chris. Happy Memorial Day weekend. This is my friend Amy, and today is her last day on our staff. Amy has served our church so uh, faithfully and in a fruitful way for so many years. And Amy, I just want to honor you on this last day, and it's a joy to be able to pray for you uh, and to send you into what God has next. Amy is contemplating uh, more graduate work to uh, more fully pursue some passions and some calling uh, things that the Lord has put on our heart. And so I would love it if we could just as a church family, if we're able to stand and pray for our sister Amy. Y'all, Amy has um, uh, started as a, as a business manager and became ordained in the process and um, is uh, up until today our administrative pastor. And it's a rare blend when you can bring together a, an organizing heart and a pastoral heart. And Amy, you embody those things so well. And I'm just really hopeful and excited for what God has for you and where he's going to lead you um, even as you continue to maybe explore some study that I think will be really fun and good knowing you as I do. Uh, our staff gave, uh, we had a kind of going away time um, and uh, the gifts that we gave were we all picked books and gave them to Amy and any of you who know Amy know that speaking her love language in a big way. So she has a pile of books that our staff has loaded her down with everything from children's books to cookbooks to theological books to fiction, which covers it. So let's pray for this woman. Father, thank you so much for Amy. And we, as a church family, um, we add our human yes to your God-sized yes. And we ask you to bless her in what's in front of her. God, as she contemplates doctoral work to uh, hone this passion for what a fresh expression of ministry would look like for her, where she would be in a space of using her gifts uh, Father, we just say yes to that, God. Even before it becomes something that comes to fruition, we thank you for what you're doing and what you're stirring in her. And we as a church family just add our blessing to your blessing in her life. And we thank you, God, for her time here, for her service here, both for our congregation and our staff, Lord. And we just send her out with joy in our hearts, knowing that you are good and that you tell really good stories. And we thank you for Amy in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, my friend. Love you. Amen. Let's bless Amy. You may be seated. Everyone but Thomas More. So in the very back of the room, my brother, I want you to stand up. Um, I know I'm making you feel uncomfortable, but it is what it is. This is Thomas More, and he just summited Mount Everest. And his feet hurt. So you can sit down, my friend. Thomas has been a part of our church family for a really long time. He uh, and a group of climbers were the first all-black team to hike and summit Mount Everest together. And I uh, honestly am in awe of this dude. Um, it uh, is, is quite a story and one that we hope to be able to tell. Um, yeah, that's three guys at the top of the world. I, he has summited so far five of the seven summits, um, and I just am blown away by you, Thomas. And I am very thankful and very proud to be your friend uh, and for Trinity to have been a place. I think Thomas is one of our kind of like, um, I don't know, close to like original people in this story. And so I've known this man for a long time. And um, this is, I guarantee you, for almost every one of you in the room, the first time you've ever been in the room with someone who stood on top of the world. Uh, and I'm very proud of you, my friend. May your feet heal fully in Jesus' name. Yeah. 
one day we're going to like figure out how to unpack more of that story for you because it's pretty awesome. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 11. This weekend is Memorial Day, and I just want to say to you, uh, if you know someone who has served our country, uh, especially if they have served in any kind of conflict zone, uh, chances are today they are dealing with grief because they've lost someone that they love who died in conflict. And as we honor our war dead uh, on Memorial Day, um, I hope that you will reach out to men and women you know who have served uh, because most of them know someone or served alongside someone who gave up their life in the midst of conflict. And I just want to say um, it's a heavy day. Like while a lot of people, uh, you know, barbecue and celebrate and say things like happy Memorial Day for those who have served and have lost people, um, tomorrow's going to be a, a complicated day for them. And if that's you in this room, I just want to say uh, we honor you. Thank you for your service of our country. And um, we hope and pray that whatever it is you're holding in your heart tomorrow as barbecues are being done and engaged, uh, that you will know that we are here and we're praying for you and we're grateful for your service uh, to our country. I'm going to read something that's different uh, from, from the lectionary. Uh, this week as the, um, the horrific events and the tragic events began to unfold and become more and more clear about what happened in Texas, uh, I knew that we could not just continue on in Acts, and so I've made a decision to pivot from that and to read to you a passage that I think actually gives us an opportunity to acknowledge uh, the reality and uncertainty of grief and to see what Jesus' disposition is toward us in grief and then how he responds us, uh, invites us to respond when we are confronted with things that do not make sense. Y'all, um, what happened in Buffalo... Uh, you can't find a category to make that make sense. What happened in California at the church, um, it, it doesn't make sense for us to try to understand how that kind of violence would happen. And what happened in this elementary school in Texas, there are no categories. And here's what I know in my heart. I know that because we are human, we are not good at grief. Uh, when we're confronted with things that don't make sense, and that could be national stuff like what I just named, or you could be facing your own kind of personal, private disorientation. Maybe you're going through the grief of a loss of a relationship or um, something happening in your own body, your own health, I, whatever it is. When we face grief, um, grief reminds us, loss reminds us, violence, sickness, uh, disease of any kind, it reminds us that there are parts of our world that are not as they should be. And as people, when we bump up against things that are not as they should be, our instinct is to retreat from those things because we just don't know what to do. We are used to trying to make sense of stuff. And here's what I know. We all go in different directions when we're confronted with stuff that we don't know how to handle. We either become uh, numb and desensitized to it. We just sort of check out, you know, and we make something like just something that happens somewhere else. And that works for a while until it happens closer to home and then we're confronted with a grief that we can't avoid. Or we tend to um, fixate and obsess and kind of go down the rabbit hole and become fatalistic. And I want to ask you today, as we're going to look at this moment of the death of Lazarus, so it's like a case study in grief and uncertainty, I want to ask you here at the beginning to think about where you live in terms of your tendency. Are you a maximizer or a minimizer? And the truth of the matter is we're all a little bit of both. I tend to ignore things until I can't ignore them anymore, and then I fall apart. So I like minimize first 
and then I maximize. Some of you might be the kinds of people who maximize and wear yourself out. Like some of you are maybe spending eight, 10 hours a day reading everything you can read. And then what happens is, is you get to a point to where you're just like, I can't do that anymore. And you just zoonk. So I want you to know yourself a little bit. I think that one of our invitations as, as Christians, as believers, as people who are trying to grow in our faith, as we live in an increasingly chaotic world is to learn how am I wired and where is Jesus asking me to grow? There's not a one size fits all invitation for us. God wants us to learn how to be present and how to hear him in our disorientation. And then he wants us to respond in a way that's appropriate. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 11. I'm going to read a very small portion of a really long story, uh, the death of, of Lazarus. Uh, and this picks up in verse 32 to 37 with his uh, sisters, Martha and Mary. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. It's hard to say thank you to a question like that. Let's pray, and then we're going to try to be honest with this text. Father, help us to hear the words of Jesus, not just speaking at the grave of Lazarus, but we pray that we would hear and see the heart of Jesus speaking at the graves of our own grief and fear and loss, whether that's fear over macro events in our world, or fear over very private spaces of loss. God, what we ask more than anything else is that we would see you in real places today. Help us, God, we pray, to receive from you today as we think together, as we sit together with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this story is one of the most meaningful stories for me in all of the New Testament as I look at the life of Jesus because Jesus really loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. They are three siblings who live in a little village called Bethany, which is right outside Jerusalem. And if you follow the pages of the New Testament and read the stories of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, you see that Jesus was always popping over to Bethany and hanging out with these friends. It was a space that he would enter when he didn't have a lot to do. Um, it was a, a, a refuge for Jesus. The, these people were his closest non-work friends. Uh, he spent a lot of time with the Twelve, but then you've got this special relationship with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so the way the story unfolds is that when Lazarus becomes ill, the sisters send word to Jesus and they're just like, Jesus, the one you love is sick. And they fully expected Jesus to stop what he was doing and go straight to them. They, they fully expected Jesus to, um, to come to, to be with his friend because that's who Lazarus was. He was Jesus's friend. He was not just someone he'd preached to or done something for. He, he was a friend. He was a person that Jesus spent time with as well as the sisters. 
and what we see in this bigger story, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing, it's, it's a lot of verses, is that Jesus delays. The disciples say, Lazarus is sick, like, should we go? And Jesus is like, not yet. We're going to keep doing this. Lazarus is not going to end. This is not going to end in death. And the disciples just assume, well, that means he's going to get better. Like it was, you know, a cold or it was a, a sickness that's going to recover. And then Lazarus dies. He doesn't get better. And then when Jesus shows up at the tomb, at the graveside in this little village outside Martha and Mary's house, um, Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's been gone, like hope, hope is lost. And I believe that the first thing is we're gonna walk through this text. There are three things I wanna put in front of you for your consideration. The first one is this. In this story, Jesus seems late. Like he just isn't there on time. And the first thing that Mary says to him is, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And there's this strong sense there of saying, Jesus, I know you well enough to know that you had it and have it within your power to have kept this tragedy from happening. But here we are, our brother is dead. And for Martha and for Mary, it wasn't just the loss of their brother. It wasn't just like love, like familial love. Um, in, a, in a totally patriarchal society, um, a brother would be responsible for unmarried sisters. And he was their protector. He was their provider. He was their way to live their life and not risk exploitation. It was tragic on so many levels. It wasn't easy for Martha and Mary to just go out and earn a living. It was a different world from the world that you and me, that we live in. And so when they want Jesus to intervene, what they're saying is, this is really high stakes. This is really important. And you just don't seem like you turned up on time. And I'm just going to say that if you live your life honestly before God, Instead of in a kind of Pollyanna-ish world where we put very little expectation on God so we don't feel that we're going to ever be disappointed, there are times in each of our lives where it seems like God is late. You know those places where if you're really honest, and I don't, not the kind of Sunday school prayer, not the kind of prayer that's all edited and clean, but that really honest place to say, like, if you'd been here, Jesus, like, I wouldn't have lost that person I love. If you had been here, Jesus, we wouldn't have these mass shootings where fourth graders are murdered in their classroom. And I just want to say to you, Mary looking at Jesus and saying, if you'd been here, is her being honest in a way that maybe some of us have stopped being in our own faith. And what happens is when you're not honest with your own disillusionment or your own disorientation with the places where God doesn't meet our expectations, because I'm just going to be honest, if I'm God, I'm being like, let's go, like, let's get down here and do this. And yet there are times when God doesn't operate on our timeline and things get worse. And if we don't acknowledge those things, it doesn't mean we're not carrying them in our hearts. Some of us have powered down, we've shut down, or we've stepped back even in our own vitality of faith because we don't know what to do with accumulated disorientation and disillusionment. So what happens is, is you just carry it and you begin to fade. Unacknowledged pain is still pain. Unacknowledged disorientation is still disorientation. 
And the thing that God wants you and me to be willing to live into is a kind of substantial and robust reality engagement with faith that shows us that God wants to enter into the places that do not make sense to us. There are times in life where your eyes will not see clearly what's going on around you. It's part of what it means to be finite, to be human, to be small in a world that can sometimes, maybe most of the time, seem so big and overwhelming. If you woke up and didn't know how to think about a school shooting or a grocery store shooting or a church shooting, it's not because something's wrong with your eyes. It's because sometimes things happen in the world that we can't make sense of. But what we can do is be real about those things. I believe that some of us, maybe many of us, were taught a version of Christianity that treats God like we treat the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution in the rotunda in uh, Washington, D.C. And by that, I mean something sacred that is locked away and protected because if you handled it too much, it would disintegrate in your hands. And some of us have a kind of fragile fear about our faith in God. We think if I really get into this, is it going to fall apart? So we lock it away. We revere it from a distance and we think like, oh, we're just going to keep it over there. Where has God seen late in your life? Where have you experienced disillusionment that you don't know what to do with? Naming those things in honest and real ways is really important. During the time of burnout and my time away, I wrote over a hundred pages in my journal. And I hope to God, no one ever sees that journal, but me and Jesus, because I told the Lord the places where I felt like he was late, where things didn't make sense. And I was honest and unedited. Do you have space in your life to be unedited before God? Just say the things. Here's the second thing I know is that when Jesus shows up late, four days late, the first question that he asks is, where have you laid him? And in this question, he doesn't just want to go to the physical space of the grave. He does want to go there. What he's saying to Martha and to Mary is, will you take me to the place of the loss? Will you invite me into the place where your hope ended? See, Lazarus' grave for them was where hope had ended. It was where everything was lost. It was where there was no future. There was no way forward. It was where all the things were that were most scary. And if you grew up in church, chances are there was a moment where you were told, I don't know if you can go. I don't know if God wants to go. I don't know if you should let him go to the deepest, darkest places. And so what we do is we actually begin to fail to deal with grief and disillusion and uncertainty. And it makes us more and more cynical, more and more shallow. Because we just don't know what to do. Many of you have never considered that Jesus' first question to us in our grief is where does it hurt the most? Where have you laid him? When Jesus asks this question, what he's trying to say to us, what God is trying to say to us is, I want you to let me in, to invite me into the places that feel the most dark, the most raw, the most scary, the most volatile. I don't want to be far away from those things. I want to be in those places. And for some of us, we've not had a picture of God as one who wants to move toward us in our pain. 
Because a lot of us were taught a kind of religious worldview that just says, like, God likes nice people and nice outcomes and nice things. Like, you know, just be good, be nice. And the message we get in that is your grief is messy and your mama and God don't know what to do with it, so just keep it over there. But Jesus says, where have you laid him? Where is your Lazarus grave? It could be pain in a marriage. It could be a worry about your health. It, it could be the, the injustice of murder. It could be all kinds of things. It is all kinds of things. And Jesus is saying, I don't move away from those places. I move toward those places. If we could begin to cultivate a vision of a God who is not aloof from the world's suffering or our suffering, but moves toward us in our suffering, I believe it would make us more equipped to be the kinds of people who deal honestly with grief and disillusionment. Jesus is not aloof from your pain. The shortest verse in our Bible we read, I believe the King James said, Jesus wept. Two, two words, the NRSV, like add some words. That probably bothered some of you when we were reading it because you remembered it and you're like, oh wait, I thought that was two words, four words. In, in the Greek, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. So rest assured. Um, and we think, oh Jesus, how sweet is that? I believe Jesus was weeping because he was human and he was weeping because he was God. N.T. Wright, my favorite Bible scholar, says that, that the moment of Jesus weeping at Lazarus' grave tells us that God is a God who weeps with humans as they sit lost and discouraged and disoriented. If you could imagine that God is weeping with you when you weep, there's a sense in which you then get invited to be more and more honest and real about what hurts. Where have you laid him? Jesus asks you the same question. Where have you laid it? Where does it hurt the most? Where is it the most frightening? Where is it the darkest? And Mary's response is come and see. I think these three words, come and see, are the most courageous words that a human can offer to God or anybody else when they're in grief. Because what Martha and Mary could have said is one of two extremes. What I would have said first, is this fine? Let's just go have a beer and eat some casseroles. Like, I know you're important. You got a lot of stuff going on, Jesus, and it's cool. Like, let's just go inside and eat. And maybe you're like me. Or she could have said... I don't want to do this with you anymore because you weren't here when I needed you. And if I'm honest, I start over there and then I end up over here in my worst spaces. I start with, it's cool, and then I realize at some point, it's not cool. And then I get mad. I do it with people, I do it with God. <laughs> what I want you to know is which one of those two things you do first. Are you a minimizer or a maximizer? Because what she does is she walks the middle. She says, okay, I'll take you there. She doesn't make it better than it is. She doesn't make it worse than it is. She just says, if you want reality, Jesus, we will do reality. Lord, come and see. 
The most honest thing we can do with our grief is say, Lord, come and see. It's not to fix it for God. It's not to cut God out. It's to say to God, if you're who you say you are, then I'm going to take you to the places that feel the most unresolved. And as your life unfolds, there are going to be lots of different iterations of that. But what the Lord wants us to do is to become the kinds of people who are increasingly able to say to his question, where has it hurt the most? Where have you laid him to respond to him with, Lord, come and see? I like to fix things because it gives me this sense that I'm in control. But there are some things that you can't fix. And ultimately, if you're a control person like me, it's a myth that you're in control. We think we're in control when everything's going well. And then when it's not going well, we realize what's always been true, which is that we're not nearly as in control as much as we'd like to believe. And so the biggest thing for you and me is to begin to be the kinds of people who enter into real spaces where we ask God to come into that space and meet us, believing that he has something good to say. Now we know, well, you may know, you, you, you probably have a sense that something good happens in this story. But I chose to read this portion because Mary and Martha didn't know something good was going to happen, and yet they entered into a real space anyway. I don't think the world knows that they're watching you, but they are. I don't think people consciously are measuring or caring what Christians think or how Christians act in chaos. But I think people are watching and measuring, and I do think they care. And if we tend to be the kinds of people that minimize pain because we can't handle pain, or we fall down the rabbit hole of fatalism as if God's not real and doesn't care, we're missing something in terms of imaging God to a watching world. And I believe that as Marty sang the prayer of St. Patrick, that make of me, what Patrick was basically praying in that moment was like, Lord, let me be a person who in my response to the chaos of the world is able to authentically image God. And that's what he wants. But before you're able to image God, you've got to be met by God. So here's the question I want us to consider as you consider your own story, do you tend to maximize or minimize suffering and pain? And where is God inviting you to grow? As I said, because of my own childhood and the experiences of my life, I learned very early on to minimize pain. It, it was how I got through in some ways. I just had to like make it seem a little better than it was. That may not be your story. We all have a story, though, and that's why when we get into moments like this, there's never a one-size-fits-all invitation. It's different for each one of us. So what we're going to do now for about three minutes is we're going uh, to hold some silence together. It's, it's becoming a rhythm for us as a church. Before we come to communion, we're going to hold this question. If you have a, a, a journal, you can get it out. If you have a phone and want to take this picture, I would say that you're not going to get to the bottom of this question in three minutes of silent meditation, but you can start and maybe carry it through your week. 
So I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to play the piano, but I'm going to sit behind the piano. So don't worry. And then we're going to come together and, and we're going to come to communion. But first, we're just going to be brave enough to ask real questions of our own hearts uh, before the Lord. Um, and so I, I want to invite you into a moment of silence uh, for contemplation and reflection. We're able to stand together. <clears throat> 